Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Uh, it's November the 2nd uh, in San Francisco, a rather chilly San Francisco um, on this uh, early November day. It's been raining here, which is rather unseasonal. Uh, one of the themes in the show for regular viewers and listeners, uh, some of you will be watching this live, some of you will be watching or listening to the recording through the podcast or on YouTube. Uh, you will know, though, the story remains the same. Everything seems to be connected. Um, there are three or four major themes that we talk about on a daily basis and which are featured in the news headlines every day. Uh, coronavirus, of course. Today, the map is encouraging. It's not always the case, but it seems as if we're getting beyond the worst, at least, of this particular bout, if that's the right word, of coronavirus. Although we're learning that the impact of coronavirus is more than just medical. There was a, a guest essay in the Times today about why men die of COVID-19 more than women. And it's not just, of course, a medical issue. It's a social, cultural, and perhaps, perhaps above all else, a racial issue. Um, we've also been doing a lot of shows about the environment. Today, the headlines are all about COP26 and, and Biden's rebuke of China and Russia, the environment, health. And of course, politics. It's election day in Virginia today. There's a Republican running called Glenn Yalkin, who seems to be bringing out the conventional playbook of making people feel uh, very insecure on, on the racial and cultural front. And indeed, uh, uh, another headline today is Kyle Rittenhouse, um, his trial at the uh, uh, because he murdered some people at the Black Lives Matter protests last year. So politics, the environment, and above all else, health are connected. Uh, yesterday, I talked to Stan Cox, a political activist from uh, Kansas, who uh, makes fixing of politics central to the fixing both of the epidemic and of uh, our environmental crisis, his book, the path to a livable future, a new politics to fight climate change, racism, and the next pandemic. Uh, it was a good book, good conversation. And today we're continuing on that theme. Another book uh, has just come out this week, Sandro uh, uh, Galea's The Contagion Next Time. Uh, Galea is a, uh, a very distinguished doctor, uh, um, an expert on, on contagion. But he's also a political and cultural thinker. And this book, The Contagion Next Time, very much treats uh, COVID, the pandemic, and our health, our broader health crisis um, in the context of race and inequality in America today. And I'm thrilled uh, that he is joining us from Washington, D.C. today, looking very formal in his suit and tie. I said to him, why are you dressed up? And he said it goes with the, the business. I think you have a pretty fancy title, Sandro, don't you? Well, I'm a dean of a school of public health. If that's a fancy title, then I suppose that's my title. Uh, but you don't push your, and I, I was complimenting you on this um, in our, in our pre-camera introduction, you don't push your medical credentials 
in this new book. Most doctors, when they write a book, even if it's about cultural politics, they'll always say they're an MD or a professor or a PhD after their name. You don't do that. And and, and this book is very much written um, in the context of your broader interest, I guess, perhaps as a, as a citizen, not just of America, but of the world. Is that fair? I think that's fair. I, I, one of my, you know, I have a list of aphorisms I try to live by. And one of them is that uh, ideas are not responsible for the people who propose them or believe in them. And uh, I'd like to think that the ideas stand, stand uh, alone without necessarily needing to rely on uh, my degrees. And obviously, my ideas emerge from my training and my experiences. And that's, uh, I mean, I'm pretty explicit about that in, uh, in the book, but I hope that the ideas, anybody's ideas should be taken at face value as ideas and evaluated accordingly. How would you describe this book, The Contagion, next time? Is it a book about the pandemic, about COVID? Um, the, the, the first sentence in the book is, I think it's, it began with a bat or it started with a bat. And of course, right. in part, it's a book about contagions. You're a, a trained uh, epidemiologist. Uh, but it's a book also about, shall we put it, the, 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 a, a sort of a, a cultural and a social and a political uh, uh, epidemiology of, mm. uh, of, of the current world. And I apologize for mangling that word. No, no, no. I actually think it's a, I think it's a terrific question. Nobody has asked me the question yet. I, I think it's a book, if I were to characterize it, that aims to use the pandemic moment to make broader points about our society and the way we structure our society and our economy and how we live. Points that really could have been made absent the pandemic, but points that I think the pandemic sharpened, bring to focus, and the pandemic should should push us to pay attention to these points. So I'm not sure it is a pandemic book, but it is a book that highlights what I think are critical issues that in a time of pandemic, we would be ill-served to ignore. Um the Cox book came with the subtitle, A New Politics to Fight Climate Change, Racism, and the Next Pandemic. Your book doesn't have a subtitle. If it did, would it be a new politics, a new culture, a new uh, philosophy? What is the, the yeah. core idea at the heart of your argument? Because we need something new. Everyone's saying it, and you're saying it as loudly and as artic and in in a, in a very articulate way. I think the subtitle would be a a new way to think about what we need to do to prevent the next pandemic. And let me explain what I mean. I mean, when I wrote this book, my anticipation was that the book would come out in the fall of 2021, and there would be a number of books being written about how to prevent the next pandemic. And I expect that those books will be largely about better vaccine technology, ways to for surveillance, pathogen detection methods, and all that. Now, all of that is important and all that is necessary. But my point in the book, my central point, is that all of that is maybe necessary, but insufficient. That fundamentally, the devastation wrought by the pandemic in the US context, and the book, although it's globally framed, it's very much an American book, will still happen with the next pandemic unless we pay attention to our underlying structures, unless we pay attention to the fact that a certain groups of people are at greater risk of exposure simply by way of their occupation, simply by way of wage structures, and that certain groups of people are at greater risk of severe disease simply by way of their underlying burden of pathology, which is due to decades and centuries of disadvantage and marginalization, and that that makes us sitting ducks for the consequences of a novel pathogen. So really it's saying 
if we're serious about preventing the next pandemic and its effects on us, we need to pay attention to these forces, not simply to the high-tech approaches that are going to mitigate the pandemic, which is what we tend to focus on. Yeah, one word that perhaps comes to mind if, if, if you did have a subtitle was just or would be justice or injustice. And that's the, that seems to be the core of, of the book. You're pointing out the unjust consequences of, of the pandemic. Um, and I'm, sometimes it's not entirely clear. It's, it, it's not, this is not a criticism of you because it's very hard to separate cause and effect here. But sometimes it's hard to separate the cause and effect of injustice in our pandemic age. Some people, Sandra, will be familiar with your excellent book, Well, and healthier. So you, you've, this is a familiar terrain to you. What do you add to a book like Well, which is, um, uh, to quote the Oxford University description, uh, a, a radical argument of how health has little to do with medicine and how America gets it wrong? Well, I suppose, I suppose what the contagion next time adds to Well is, sadly enough, a, a statement of we've tested out the, our approach through the pandemic and our dominant approach to health, and we've seen how badly our approach fails. And by our approach, I mean an, a sick care investment approach. We as a country invest much more in health than any other high-income country, and, and at the same time, we live shorter, sicker lives. And that's sort of what I focused on in well, and in well, I focused on what it is that causes that, and it is fundamentally our underinvestment in the world around us. The pandemic comes, the pandemic hits, and we saw that the country that spends more on health than any other country in the world has the worst health outcomes for the pandemic. We have more cases per capita, more deaths per capita than any other country in the world. And I think that should make us ask ourselves, why is that the case? If we invest so much, why is it that our pandemic outcomes were so poor? Now, the pandemic was a triumph of biomedicine. We developed vaccines within eight months, really, of the first diagnosis of COVID-19 in the United States and the vaccines were more than 90% efficacious. I mean, that is a triumph. And of course, it is a triumph of what we have invested in. We have invested in, we've invested in biomedical, in biomedical approaches, we've invested in therapeutics, we've invested in vaccinology. And what we have invested in, we are now reaping what we have sown. At the same time, what we have not invested in is what resulted in the tragedy that was COVID, 700,000 American deaths. And, and those deaths, many of them could have been prevented had we had a healthier country before COVID hit, had we had a country which with our economic structures and social structures such that we could protect the most vulnerable. Now we knew that, we knew that before COVID hit, but COVID really sharpens our attention. And in some respects was a stress test that says, are these ideas that were out there before, are they right? And unfortunately, these ideas are clearly right because we saw it, we saw how when a pandemic hits, we were, to use the term again, sitting ducks for these adverse consequences. So I suppose what I'm trying to do here is to say, if we don't listen to these ideas now, when will we? Like, surely now we are going to pay attention. We've had a lot of conversations um, about uh, healthcare, uh, Sandro. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Robert Pearl, another a distinguished American doctor who's written a book, a very controversial book about how rotten the state of American medicine is, not just with patients and healthcare, but even with doctors, their misery. Did a show recently with Tom Hartman, the progressive 
podcast uh, radio journalist about the shameful history of American healthcare. How much has the COVID crisis brought out the rottenness of the system itself, the health system? We haven't had that many stories yet about the crisis of insurance. I'm sure we will, though. Yeah, I, th I think one one key distinction I've tried to make in uh, both in Contagion and other books is that we need to distinguish health from healthcare. What we call healthcare in this country really is sick care. It's something that we can buy and sell, which is my access to treatment if I am sick, your access to treatment if you are sick. And, and one, one could buy and sell that. What is much harder to buy and sell at the individual level is health. Health fundamentally is a public good because health is created by the world around us, by the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, by whether or not we have opportunities to exercise, whether we're safe from violence, whether we have stable housing, whether we have livable wages. That's ultimately what creates health. So our mistake is conflating healthcare, which has its own set of problems, our healthcare, or what I think is better termed our sick care system, from the forces that generate health. And the argument here, this is not, uh, I'm always careful to make this point. I'm not making an or argument. I'm not making an argument against the need for having a healthcare or a sick care system. When I'm sick, I would like to have the best possible doctor, best possible nurse. I'm simply making an argument that that is insufficient. And if anything is ever going to teach us that is COVID, where we saw our sick care system, in this case, in the form of vaccines, in the form of therapeutics in hospitals, really worked very well. Like it really worked extraordinarily well during COVID. But I don't think anybody, I don't think any of your listeners will say that our national response to COVID was a success. Well, it was not a success, not because our healthcare slash sicker system failed. I actually think that did very well. It's because everything else failed and everything else is ultimately what generates health. And we are now seeing that much more clearly than we've ever seen it. What about individuals, um, Sandra? How do you think they need to rethink their attitude to their own health? We had um, the Israeli writer Talia Miran Schatz on the show. She has a new book out. And if you've seen it, your life depends on it what you can do to make better choices about your health. It's a kind of geography for individuals about finding your way about uh, around the health system. In your book, um, in The Contagion Next Time, what are you saying to individuals in terms of how they should think or rethink their relationship to their bodies and to yeah. their health? Well, let me ask it a little, uh, slightly differently. And, uh, you know, we've done surveys in, uh, in the US, actually in other countries, where we ask people, what do you think matters most for your health? And a plurality of people continue to say that what matters most to their health is their doctor and their healthcare system or their hospital. We fundamentally need as a society to recognize that what matters most for our health is where we live, where we work, where we play. In the proverbial kitchen table conversation, we want to make sure when a family is talking and somebody says, what matters most for our health? Somebody answers right away, the roof over our heads, the fact that we actually have a a spacious home where we can actually sleep at night. Once we are able to have those conversations, once we recognize that as individuals, that will shift the cultural conversation such that those who are in decision-making positions will recognize that investments in transportation and housing, in the economy, in livable wages are actually health interventions. I suppose what I would like to see is a presidential debate where the candidates debate one another about how their investment in education, their investment in housing, their investment in transportation, their investment in sanitation is going to improve health for our children over the next generations. We have not seen that yet. We have not shifted that far in our cultural conversation, but I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we are heading that way. And nothing we do 
Where's your evidence, though? Um, you know, I, I wish I, I wish I had agreed with you, Sandra. Where's the evidence uh, I, I, uh, uh, of this? I mean, for for example, a uh, um, a uh, a respectful, erudite presidential debate about where the money goes. As I said, um, uh, it's election day in Washington, uh, in in Virginia today, and the debate is all about education with a. Uh, a, a racist and racial undertone. Where's the evidence that the public discourse in this country is improving in any way? Well, I suppose I have a, I have the optimism of an immigrant. You know, I came to this country because I believe in its potential, and I do think that we are better than we were 25 years ago, than we were 50 years Where's ago. Where's the evidence? I know. Let me give you a piece of evidence. In the last, in the in the last presidential election, one of the candidates mentioned the mental health consequences of COVID, for example. That actually was President Trump. President Trump, in the last election, last debate, he mentioned the mental health toll that COVID was taking on the population. We have not had a presidential contender before mentioning mental health. That is progress. We had, in the in Democratic side, of the in the primaries, we had one of the candidates, in the case was Andrew Yang, talking about the how something like universal basic income could provide a measure of dignity and well-being that otherwise is not afforded. That was really radical compared to where we had been at years before. So we, you, you do see glimmers of that. Other evidence is this, is that the Surgeon General under President Trump, which is, you know, we could, we could argue, this is not a partisan comment, but uh, the, the, the Trump administration was in no way a friend to some of these ideas which I'm promoting. But the Surgeon General under President Trump issued a report about how it is that the private sector could work to improve what are typically called the social determinants of health, the things I'm talking about, housing, transportation, wages, in order to improve health. That was the Surgeon General under a Republican president who was, generally speaking, antagonistic to these ideas. So these ideas are emerging, and I think they're emerging because, frankly, they're obvious. They're, they're obvious. I and mean, I find myself, when I'm talking to audiences, I get a bipolar response. One side says, what you're saying is obvious, and the other side says, what you're saying is radical, and, and we cannot even countenance it. And eventually, both those approaches are going to converge. This is neither radical nor impossible. It is actually sort of fairly much common sense squarely in the middle. Yeah, and that might describe the book, The Contagion Next Time, common sense, fairly in the middle, but also radical, um, and a sharp polemic i mean it's it's a wake up call it's a it's a sharp wake up call to americans in particular that next time around not just the next covid but the next national crisis we've got to get it right you borrow the title from james baldwin's the fire next time the contagion next time there's a lot of uh commentary about racial injustice and racism in the book um how much do you think the black lives matter narrative has reshaped not just America, but American healthcare and an understanding of the injustice of American healthcare? I think the moment in 2020, the moment which was triggered by the killing of unarmed black men and women, particularly George Floyd, but also many others, was catalytic. I mean, we saw civil unrest, legitimate outpourings of protest that was of a scale that's larger than we've ever seen in this country. And and that was, of course, at the time, directly linked to these police killings, but it, it also reflected a growing sense of awareness of the injustice that even something like a pandemic was having a disproportionate impact on people of color. 
And uh, and the, the question is, well, why is that? I, I think fundamentally, it struck people that this is not right, that it reflects years, decades, and centuries of injustice and marginalization. So I actually do think that we're at a place of a renaissance of these ideas where issues of social justice, racial justice are at the forefront in a way that they've never been before. Now, I think one can easily one can easily be cynical about this and say, well, there's a lot of performative sort of moves out there on the part of the private sector, public sector, and nothing will change. Perhaps, but I actually think this is how the Overton window of conversation shifts. This is how we shift the legitimate window of conversation. And part of the legitimate window of conversation now is the, is the observation that we should not have our health depending, depend on our race or ethnicity. Our everybody, everybody should have the same access to the resources that makes them healthy equitably. And that was not and are part you calling of the conversation then, before. Are you calling then for a profound reform of the insurance system or of the socioeconomic structures in America. Stan Cox, who I mentioned at the beginning, who was on the show yesterday, he believes unabashedly, uh, unashamedly in a post-capitalist world. We've had a number of shows about post-capitalism. I had Tim Jackson, the English economist on the show recently, uh, on the incompatibility of capitalism and love. Uh, I know you've written and thought and spoke a lot about love. Uh, he has a new book out, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism. Do you believe, um, Sandro, that the change you want is conceivable under capitalism itself? Or do we need a fundamental reform of the socioeconomic nature of this country? Well, I suppose my I, I, I fall short of these other authors in, uh, in uh, saying what they're saying, simply because... I've lived under other systems, I've seen other systems, and I'm not sure that I'm convinced that any other system of economic structuring is better than a system that incentivizes private achievement through monetary means, which is fundamentally what capitalism is. Uh, I think the mistake that we make though, is in thinking that capitalism or a market-driven economy is exists through the, through the form of invisible hand where effort is on a level playing field and people get their just rewards. That's not the case. Our market-driven economy is shaped by a set of rules, by it is hemmed in by laws and policies that we agree on together. And those rules and those laws can be improved substantially to make sure that we do not have left behinds, either economic left behinds or as a result, health left behinds, that we narrow the gaps, both in economic gaps as well as in health gaps. So I think fundamentally, if you're asking me, do, do I think that, let's say, a centrally driven economy is better than market driven economy? I actually don't think that's the case. Do I think that unfettered capitalism is the way to go? I actually don't think there's such a thing as unfettered capitalism. I think our market driven economy is actually operates within a set of rules that are deliberately set through our legislative system. And we need to be better at what rules we set in order to narrow gaps, in order to make sure that we have much less of a gap between the haves and have nots, as a result, much less of a gap between the health haves and the health have nots. I think there's an appetite amongst progressives for a new political visionary of one kind or another. Uh, Jackson, in his uh, post-growth book, had a whole section on Bobby Kennedy. Uh, and Bobby Kennedy's come up quite often in books. You have a, a section on him, too. Do we need a new Bobby Kennedy? There doesn't seem to be one. Uh, Biden's very old and very inarticulate. Perhaps it's an AOC. But is there a need for a 
uh, a Bobby Kennedy style voice to mm -hmm. rethink um, our economy and our society and to revalue public space, which is the core of your argument? I think I think figures like Bobby Kennedy are um, really important. I think they're galvanizing. I think they're energizing and they help break through the noise with a really sharpening our ideas. And, and I think figures like Bobby Kennedy, who I also admire, help help articulate a radical vision. And I think we do want a radical vision. But I also think that uh, time and history teaches that the radical vision is best achieved through incremental improvement, that fundamentally the world is a complex place. There are, there are inertias, there are vested interests. And in order to get to a better vision, it requires good people of good conscience doing the really hard work of incrementally improving the systems within which we operate. So I, I think it's terrific to have uh, inspirational visions and, and inspirational figures who can articulate those visions. But to think that we can get there through a the stroke of a pen or through one charismatic figure, which typically, by the way, those images of charismatic figures are gendered and, uh, and based on sort of how we perceive people in power, um, I think it's a mistake. I, fundamentally, systems improve through really hard work of piece by piece improving the rules within which we operate that create the conditions that generate our well-being and and i think anybody who is serious about creating a better world has to be committed to that hard work life is complex that's another of the i guess the ideologies or the ways of thinking about the the world in 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 your book and I was thrilled that you cited uh, Bob Dylan's rough and rowdy ways, his last album, his latest album, maybe his truly last album. First, um, the first song, one of the great songs on the album is I Contain Multitudes, which I guess is a kind of distillation of what you're saying about complexity. What is it about uh, Dylan and that album that inspired you so much? You talk about Dylan as a humble man and, and an ability to translate his humility into art in the context of our COVID year 2020. What is it about this particular album that that, that, that made it into your book? Well, I, I think in a COVID year, I've been thinking a lot about humility. I think COVID coming as it did at a time when uh, we are experiencing so much of public life through the filter of social media, it is a, a medium that uh, is a terrible terrible place for humility there's a medium that uh, that rewards the assertive and the, the the assertive the declarative and the certain which is of course the exact opposite of humility and i think uh, the fact that we've lived this pandemic through a social media time has complicated our response to the pandemic so i was really trying to in a chapter on humility to hearken to, to to remind us that we are best suited by having humility about what we know and what we do not know particularly about complex processes a pandemic is the quintessential complex process. I mean, let's take an example, for example, about schools and school closures. Well, children, we knew early on in the pandemic that children are less likely to acquire COVID than our adults. They're less likely to transmit COVID, very unlikely to have severe COVID. And yet we close schools. We close schools because we're looking for simple solutions. It's a really complex question about what we should have done about schools, recognizing the lifelong loss to these children's emotional, social, developmental trajectory by us closing schools, recognizing that when you close schools, you are disadvantaging schools that are predominantly schools with children of color. These are really complex, difficult questions, and it requires humility of spirit and of intent to recognize that we need to approach them without 
looking for simple answers. There are these are really difficult answers, and I think we lived the pandemic through this moment of conflicting certitudes, many of which were wrong, many of which were wrong over and over and over again. And my hope is that we will learn how to deal with the cacophony of social media that fundamentally is no real, it's not really a substitute for the public square, right? Because social media is an algorithmically driven medium that rewards emotion and anger and, uh, and, 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 and rewards those who are most willing to be most outrageous and most most precise in their outrageousness. That is not what should be driving our public conversation. And we right now haven't figured out how to create a public conversation that respects nuance, respects complexity, and respects that doing the right thing sometimes is difficult and not so obvious. We've had lots of shows actually about that, about public space in in, in the digital sphere. But what I'm not convinced with is I, I I buy your respect of Dylan. Complexity sells albums. Artists are complex, and, and that's how people listen or read or watch them. But in the political sphere, the reverse is true. We talked a little bit about Bobby Kennedy. His son, of course, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., um, is an anti-vaccine advocate. I, I don't want to personalize this, and I'm not suggesting that everyone is like uh, Robert F. Kennedy. But it seems as if, at least when it comes to public debate, simplicity is the thing that sells, vulgarity, rage, hatred. Um, so I just don't see it. I mean, I respect what you're saying, and I, I believe it myself, but I just don't see any evidence of it. Well, I, I, uh, I suppose it depends on... Uh, first, first of all, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure I agree that complexity sells albums. I actually think simplicity is, is, is what sells for better or for worse. But be that as it may, I mean, Dylan may be the exception because of his stature and his longevity. But, Fair enough. But be, be that as it may, uh, it depends on, on what you see the role of political actors. If you see the role of political actors as leading and setting the tenor of the public discussion, then it's one set of thoughts. If you see the role, as I do, of political actors as fundamentally following where the public conversation is, then I think one gets much more hope. I, I think that political actors are attuned to where the winds are blowing in the public conversation. And if one can change the public conversation, the politics will also change. And we are at a time, I mean, the past seven years have, have been this extraordinary time of polarized division driven by reductive simplifications on the left and on the right. Like in 2015, we saw the rise of Donald Trump on one side, Bernie Sanders on the other side. And this is not to, in, in any way to equate the two, but I'm just simply pointing out the polls. And, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders has some very nuanced, very thoughtful, very well worked out positions. Having said that, what trailed this, his rise were, was a, were many movements that reduced what are really complex ideas into broad simplifications. Similarly, you saw it on the side of Trump. And, and that drove the country apart. It is, it is populism reduced to its reductive essence rather than saying populism should be about what the people are want in order to improve the lives of people. And improving the lives of people is never easy because people are different and in a pluralistic societies. We want to respect people being different. That requires hard work and that requires careful thought. How deep is the crisis, finally, Sandro, in historical terms? I, you gave a very popular TED speech in which you spoke about uh, W.H. Auden's poem, September 1, 1939, this 
great poem about the breakdown of civilization, the onset of barbarism. How close are we to September 1, 1939, all over again, and obviously a slightly different context? Yeah, I, I, um, I don't know the answer to that. I think, I think every generation uh, has its own calamities and phantasms, and, uh, and we are no exception. I would prefer to lean into the positive. And as you've uh, challenged me several times in this uh, conversation, you're not sure you see the evidence. I think I see more tendrils of hope. I see, uh, you know, I, I have the privilege of leading a school of public health, as we said at the beginning. As a result, I'm surrounded by... Uh, right, the Boston like, University School of Public Health, you're the, the dean, which yeah, is why you're wearing a, a tie and suit and tie. That's right, that's why I'm wearing a suit and tie. But as a result, I'm surrounded by people who are earlier in their, in their life journey than I am who come in believing and believing that they are and they're deeply committed to making the world a better place and be believing in the need for justice and fairness and to make sure that, that we do not have people who are left behind in that journey. And when I see that, and every year we have hundreds and hundreds and thousands of these students all over the country, all over the world, I think to myself, this is a good thing. This is going to make the world better. It's going to make a better world for my children and my grandchildren. And and I, to be frank, I don't want to believe the alternative because I, I think uh, I think it's important to lean into hope. Yeah, I agree. And I don't want to sound too miserable. Actually, recently we had the Boston-based um, doctor, fellow young doctor, Jonathan Reisman uh, on the show. He's written a book about the human body and he was an optimistic, happy doctor. So not all doctors are miserable. And uh, this doctor is certainly not miserable. Uh, Sandro Aguilia, the contagion next time. It's a warning, but it's an optimistic warning that we can make the world a better place. We can build public space or rebuild public space in America. We can address racial, economic, cultural injustice. Uh, and then the, the contagion next time will be less of a contagion. Sandro, congratulations on the book. I really enjoyed it. It's a, a, a short, sharp polemic, coherent, beautifully written, very different from the kinds of books that most doctors write. Um, in addition to your new book, what else should people be reading in these post-contagion times? Well, I, I would recommend a, a, a book of fiction. I actually would love Maggie O'Farrell's Hamlet. It's a, it's a retelling of... Uh, of uh, Shakespeare and the loss of his son Hamnet. But the reason I liked it and relevant to my book is because it talks about a time when contagion was commonplace. It talks about a time when contagion was just a, a fact of life. And it reminds you of how far we've come. This perhaps goes back to our conversation about why we're better. You know, at the time, children, 10 year olds, just developed, developed the plague, died just like that unexpectedly over the course of a couple of days. And I mean, it's a beautiful book. It's a book about the loss of child and it's a very sad book, but it's actually a beautiful book. And, and when I read that, I remember, you know, if you were to give me a time machine and you say to me, Sandra, which would you rather come back, which any time in history? My answer would be today, because today is better than 400 years ago, it's better than 100 years ago. And I think 100 years from now will be better than today. And you remind us of that very much in, in the book. Uh, there was a woman next to me on an airplane last week right, reading it. I haven't read the book, but I'll have to read it myself. Well, Sandro uh, Galea, really, um, real honor to talk to you. Thank you for being so optimistic in the face of everything that seems to be going wrong. We need guys like you. And I hope you'll come back on the show again to talk about reforming the American healthcare system. Perhaps your next book will focus back on that. Uh, but this new book, um, The Contagion Next Time, is, is, a, is a really hopeful 
articulate um, book about how we can make our world and particularly America better. So congratulations on that. Uh, Keep well, keep fighting, keep thinking good thoughts, and we'll talk again in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. Take care.